0: professors, instructors at uh, Chafer Seminary. He is uh, Ray Mondragon. He grew up in Taos, New Mexico. He's lived in Albuquerque for many, many years, has a ministry there uh, at, at the university. He has uh, served as a professor at both Trinity Southwest University, Noel Webster College, and he also goes over and speaks uh, at the International Baptist Bible College in Ukraine as well as for Jim Myers. Right, and, uh, most of you should be familiar with Jim Myers. Uh, Ray went to uh, University of New Mexico, uh, has a degree in civil engineering. He also graduated with a ThM from Dallas in Old Testament studies, like Charlie did, and like I did, and anybody else who went Old Testament at Dallas. Mm. And when uh, we didn't get too messed up, did we? <laughs> Remains to be seen. And. Uh, Anyway, so he is uh, he 's one of our professors, so he has a lot of uh, uh, because he works with college kids works in the university environment a lot uh, he really has a, done a lot of work in the area of, of creation studies and creation studies really includes the whole uh, the whole block of those first eleven chapters of Genesis not only mm-hmm. dealing with creation in Genesis one two three but also with uh, with uh, the, the flood as well as Uh, Tower of Babel so Ray we're
1: looking forward to this thank you I think I'm mic'd up I'm glad Robbie uh, introduced me because the Albuquerque people don't recognize me we're a little more informal in New Mexico up is on right Okay? All right. Good enough. It's on. Also, I want to, before I get into the topic this morning, uh, thank Nancy Northcutt. She's one of the founders of Clay... What's your name? Clay Clay Ward's Church in Tullahoma. My mind goes blank with names, so if I've known you 40 years, I'll still forget your name. So don't be surprised. Yeah, she, uh, I had her, I asked her to edit my paper. And being an engineer, I don't write very well. That's why you go into engineering, because you can't read and write. <clears throat> you can handle numbers, but you can't read and write. So, uh, instead of editing it, she thought that it'd be a lot easier just to rewrite it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you can thank her for that if you find it, uh, readable so i won 't be quoting from the paper. You might just pay attention to the uh, the slides here because i 'm not sure what she included so <laughs> but I did pick a safe topic uh, if you don 't quite understand what i 'm talking about well it 's Babel <clears throat> talk about Babel. The topic basically the focus of the passage, I believe is the scattering you want to put it in one word, and you want to begin in Genesis chapter 10. The two passages go together, Genesis 10 and 11, so if you want to turn there. The main emphasis, however, of what I want to get into are the implications and evidence of uh, early technology, early advanced culture, and since this is creation, seminar, one of the things that I wanted to deal with is kind of countering the culture in which we live in, in terms of particularly evolution, but uh, other areas as well. So we're going to look a little bit beyond that, but in order to look at that, we need to introduce it by looking at the text itself. Just by way of introduction, the almanacs say that there are about 193 nations in the world, And amongst all of those nations, there are 6,000, according to John Aller, who's a linguist, 6,912 individual languages in the world, grouped into 94 different families. Now, if you ask any historian, any secularist, the typical answer, if you want to know where did nations come from, most people haven't even thought about it. And where do languages come from? The answer, obviously, a secular answer is evolution. In other words, people, basically, after they gathered, after gathering and hunting stages, congregated into cities, cities expanded into eventually nations, and as people got isolated, then they began to speak different dialects, and then they became less distinct from one another, et cetera. That's the evolutionary mindset. So what we want to do is contrast that with a biblical worldview. In fact, we ought to do this with every area of study, whether it be science. In fact, uh, I, if you remember two years ago, I gave you a biblical foundation for science, which is different from a secular approach and a secular view of science. We can do the same thing with the origin of nations, the origin of languages. So that's some of what we want to do too today as well. So the two contrasting views basically is a secular, primarily evolutionary view. And that view would uh, disregard the data that we have in Genesis 10 and 11 viewing both those chapters as legendary, mythological, and certainly not historical. So we would take the biblical worldview that uh, Babel is really the answer to the origin of the nations. And it is also the answer of where languages came from. In fact, the nations came as a result, if you're familiar with the text, The nations came as a result of the confusing or the arising of languages. And God is behind both of those. It is as a result of what He did, not as a result of slow processes of evolution. So we won't argue the case. We'll just explain why we're right. Okay, so what I'd like to do is give you a little brief introduction, develop the context of the passage Secondly, give you a brief exposition of Genesis 11, first nine verses. And then once we've laid that foundation, develop some of these implications to begin thinking biblically, particularly in the area of languages. So this should be prerequisite to any study at university dealing with linguistics. Obviously, it's not because they're controlled by evolutionists, right? So we want to draw some implications from the passage from Babel. And then once we do that, and I admit I'm trying to do too much on this talk, but so what? (laughs) Uh, Then we'll look at evidence, fourthly, evidence of advanced culture. And there's lots of evidence. Most of it you may not have heard of. Some of you've heard of, but haven't thought about it. But if you think about some of the evidence, you'll have to you come to the conclusion there were some amazing things that took place very, very early in man's history. So I want to review some of that briefly towards the end. So that's kind of the uh, broad outline of what I want to accomplish in two parts. This part will start with mainly the exposition, and we'll get somewhere into the implications of Babel. <clears throat> Okay, let me start with a little introductory idea here. When we speak of science, there are two areas of science. One of them, in fact, when you think of science, you you mainly think probably of observational science. That is science that is done in the present. In other words, that's what scientists generally do day by day. This is what they endeavor to do make observations, come to some tentative conclusions, hypotheses. From that, they want to test it and then begin to refine their initial conclusions and come up with uh, sound principles that we can rely on to take to the next stages of engineering, etc. So that's kind of observational science. We as believers have very little problem with observational science. The issues come up when we get into what is called uh, historical science. And that is a whole endeavor itself. In other words, reconstructing past events, very different. To reconstruct past events, because they only occur one time, science uh, is somewhat limited. ...to the data that's available. So when you have historical science, all you can study are the traces of the past. In other words, those things that are left behind that give you some indication that something took place in the past. Now, CSI is very popular as a TV program. That deals with kind of a closer-to-us historical science in that they reconstruct events... No one was an eyewitness of that murder, so you have to reconstruct from the data that you have. But historical science deals not only with that kind of science. Archaeology deals with that as well, trying to reconstruct what culture was like hundreds of years, thousands of years ago. But when we deal with the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, we're dealing with ancient past. There are traces that are left behind, and that's all that is available to study. Now, that's very, very important because the evolutionist will kind of brush over this. He will try to put us in the box of opinion rather than honest science, scientific endeavor. But what we can do as creationists do just as good scientific work, in fact, better because we have more data than what the evolutionist has. So historical science, we're going to deal a little bit with that. This is what Steve Austin was doing last night. Reconstructing a little bit of the past concerning earthquakes and what he'll probably do some more today and, and also tomorrow. So the data that is available for the person that's doing historical science, and by the way, this applies to... How, how many of you know whether or not Abraham Lincoln lived? Was he a real figure? Was he fictional? Was he legendary? Was he mythical? How do you know that? Well... We trust the traces, in other words, the data available, the traces left by an event. We have a high degree of confidence in that. And we believe that there was a president by the name of Abraham Lincoln, etc. But uh, events that took place before recorded history, uh, the, the data is far more limited. So when it comes to any historical fact... Any historical fact, you have data that's available, and this is very, very important. Here is where we depart from the secularists. Every historical fact is not just data, it's data plus interpretation. And that's where we differ, okay? And when you make your conclusions, you have a certain set of assumptions Our assumptions are totally different from the secularist. Make sense? And that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the early chapters of Genesis. And that's why we have conflicts with the reconstructing of events and and why we have a conflict with, quote, science in that area. So the secularist starts off with a set of assumptions. Those assumptions are going to drive his thinking. It's like he putting on a pair of dark glasses, and they are dark, by the way. These aren't. But they're dark glasses, and everything that they see is darkened by that shading. And they will look at the same data that we will look at. And I use this slide for my uh, Genesis flood. Actually, I use it almost every time I do a presentation on scientific stuff. But... If you're dealing with paleontology, for example, you're going to see the paleontology data, paleontological. I'm an engineer, so I don't can't always speak well. So you're going to look at that data, but you're going to have a pair of assumptions on or glasses. You're going to see that. You're going to come up with an evolutionary conclusion. We as believers are going to look at the same data. We're not going to change the data. We're going to look at the same data. But we have actually further data. We have more data. And when you're reconstructing past events, your best data is what kind of data? Not just the physical data, but documentary data. That's why we have a high degree of confidence that there is an Abraham Lincoln, because we have an abundance of records, of eyewitness accounts, newspapers, early writings, all of that. Well, the secularist, when he deals with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, does not have revelation. In fact, he disregards it. That is probably the most important data to be able to interpret those traces that are left behind in the physical world. Make sense? So assumptions are very, very, very important. In fact, uh, bring it maybe closer to you all. Uh, your interpretation of Civil War events, looking at the same data, may be different if you're from the South than if you're from the North, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did you get that interpretation? <laughs> He's got interpretation B there. But this is applicable when we deal with any historical event. So everything I'm telling you is coming from a biblical worldview. And this is what we as believers, we need to kind of take a step back in dealing with creation versus evolution, dealing with the Genesis flood, and in this case, dealing with Babel. And take a look at the, the data that's available in terms of revelation, because that is, in, this, in our case, because we believe that it's inerrant, is the most significant data. So everything else is secondary, actually, from our perspective. God tells Job, uh, kind of in his exposition of not only creation but other events, he asks questions, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's the same question we need to ask the evolutionist. Were you there? Did you see these organisms transforming from one species to another? Did you see... The laying down of these geological layers. Did you see all of these things that you, you, you seem to have expertise in? Were you there? Well, most of these things we don't have eyewitness accounts. Okay? So let's get into the text. And let me give you a quick overview of the context. This is kind of my outline of the early chapters of Genesis. History of creation. That's essentially Genesis 1 with uh, the seventh day in chapter 2 there. And obviously, we have an inspired account of how everything came about. And in that book review that I'm going to do at noontime, I'm going to kind of deal a little bit with why we differ. Even within the church, part of it deals with what I just mentioned here concerning interpretation. And unfortunately, the church has been infected by some of the same assumptions that the secularist uses in interpreting Genesis chapter 1. But anyway, that's a whole other thing here. Secondly, uh, we have the early history of mankind. And I include the what so-called second creation account, because I think those chapters go together, two and three. And they form a unit there. So we include the fall of man. So we have two of the most important Events, historical events in in history, world history. You have the creation, and then you have the fall. Very important. Then we have the early history of civilization, chapters 4 through 9, and we have a very significant event there, a third major event of world history, which would be the Genesis flood. And these are more important than any historical event you'll find in any world history book. And then we get to the chapters that we're going to look at, chapters 10 and 11. This is the early history of the nations. And I precede all of these with history. These are historical accounts. We believe that they are real events. They're not just theological stories or they're not just theology presented. These are historical events. And I believe that we have very significant historical data concerning the origin of the nations in chapters 10 and 11. So let's give me let's give you a real quick overview of uh, chapter 10 first of all and I'd like to just highlight some verses if you want to follow along in the text there I'll be reading the ones up on the screen there. Now these are the records or the toledotz I won't get off on that it'll take too long to explain but I think this is the results of what what is summarized in verses 1 and 2. In other words, chapter 10 begins this major portion of the book of Genesis. This is the outcome, you could even say, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah and the sons were born to them after the flood. So we have somewhat of a context there. Then verse 2 begins with the first Son here, or at least the first one in the order mentioned. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tirus. First generation uh, after uh, Japheth. So the, we have what is commonly referred to as the Table of Nations. That's chapter 10. Japheth, indication from a passage that he's the oldest. And then the next one will be Ham, who's probably the youngest. And verse 6, we have the generations or the descendants of Ham. And the sons of Ham were Cush, Mishraim, Put, Canaan. Each of these are very significant. These ultimately form nations or at least ethnic groups in some cases. And then he goes on to describe them. Now he's giving partic- Moses here,'s giving particular emphasis in verses eight through 11, and I think it gives us some clues and lays a little bit of a foundation to help us better understand chapter 11. And some have come to conclusions based on these verses concerning chapter 11. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. We have an individual that's called out. In other words, attention is given to Nimrod. Now, not just because of what it says here, but more than likely, Nimrod is in fact the leader that we have an exposition of in chapter 11. And I think that's why it's called uh, to the forefront here. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord and, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Okay, there's your tie in. So at least he has a relationship to Babel and more. Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So I think we have a connection here. I think probably it's probably a good conclusion to think that Nimrod is the leader that we find in chapter 11. And then in verse 21, we have the next generation. Let's see if I skip something. Not yet okay verse twenty one and also to Shem, the father of all the children here's the the next son, Shem, the last son, children of Eber and the older older brother of Japheth children were born to him. Now, I won't get into that, but the grammar there may indicate the New American standard almost seems like Shem is older, but we won't get into that for now. Uh, you can study that on your own. But anyway, we have the descendants of Shem. And then we have another little, I think, little editorial note that gives us some more data that lays some more foundation for chapter 11. Uh, After he traces these descendants through our Pakshad, the two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg. And then we have an interesting phrase. In his days, the earth was divided. Now, it's a little vague. And there's different views on it. Probably the best view is this is a reference to what happened in chapter 11. And there's several reasons, a couple of reasons. One is virtually every major event in the book of Genesis, we can tie down in terms of when it happened. In other words, we can put it on a chronological chart. We can put a date to it. The only one that we don't have a precise date to the year is Babel. But I think this perhaps gives us a hint. And when it says uh, the earth was divided, it's talking about probably divisions of peoples, ethnic groups, and eventually into nations. And if that's the case, it says in the days of Peleg. Now, in the other genealogy after chapter 11, we have the specific dating of when the descendants had sons and how old they were when they died, etc. So we can put in a time frame at least a span for Babel. So I'll come back to that later. So verse 25 is very important. And then chapter 10 somewhat summarizes what uh, Moses is doing with this table of nations. He tells us what he's just done. These are the sons of Shem according to their families. So families were generated according to their languages. First time we have the plural idea of languages. According to their or or by their lands, according to their nations. First occurrence of nations. Book of Genesis. Here's the origin of the nations. And what we're going to have in chapter 11, this is introductory, this sets the stage. And I take chapter 11 to be chronologically uh, before chapter 10 in terms of chronology. Now, this is not unusual. I could give you some other passages where Moses seems to take things more uh, topically or you might even say more logically rather than chronologically. So, I think what he does is he lays out, in other words, these are the results, these are the nations, these are the ethnic groups that are represented by different languages as well, that are the outcome of what happens in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11. Okay, makes sense? And I think we have a little bit of a clue there in verse 31. So we have languages and nations. And then verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies. And if you didn't get it in verse 31, by their nations and out of these, the nations were separated. Okay. Probably referring in this context back to verse 25, the dividing of probably peoples. All right. So out of these the nations came, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So now we have something of a kind of a relationship, chapter 10 with chapter 11. And then the last son, the chosen one, is Shem. And just a quick, I'm going to run out of time here if I don't hurry here. Uh, Just a quick, brief mention of where these peoples ended and there's some debate, but most people acknowledge that Gomer is probably the furthest northeast. And in fact, the Japhethites probably ended up to be Indo-Europeans, particularly Gomer and possibly the northern peoples like Russians today, That those groups. Uh, Javan is generally considered the forefather of the Greeks, and Tyrus, Meshech, at least Turkey, and probably migrated north as well. So those are Japheth, the light greenish color, I guess. Ham's descendants would have descended primarily south. Misraim is very clear. That's Egypt, no doubt about that. Canaan is very clear. And by the way, Canaan, attention is called to Canaan also in the Table of Nations, as well as chapter 9, the oracle of of Noah. Uh, So Mizraim, Canaan, well-known, Put, Libyans, Cush, perhaps African peoples. And it's also believed that there were some that probably migrated east, and some scholars believe that Chinese, Japanese, all the eastern peoples are either a combination of Ham and probably Japheth, uh, or at least Hamitic primarily, so they would have gone not just south. And then we have the Shemites, Lud, Aram, and some of these, the Assyrians would come from Asher, Elam, probably Persians, and maybe a combination of Elam and maybe others of Hamitic's, perhaps gone east. There's big debate on this. We won't get bogged down with the details. And then Shem's line goes through Arpakshad, eventually to Abraham. And I think what we have in the table of nations are the nations that existed in the time of Abraham because chapters 1 through 11 is introductory to the nation of Israel and the forefather of the nation of Israel, uh, Abraham. So if you want them all together, that's how they would look on one map. If you want modern-day boundaries, there's the modern-day boundaries slide. Okay. Okay. What's the purpose of the table of nations real quick here well it gives us the origin nations and what we have here is the only inspired record in fact the secularist doesn't have anything comparable uh, they basically have no idea where nations came from all their conclusions are based on evolutionary thinking and evolutionary ideas but I think we have a A record that is inerrant and inspired, and we have an inspired record of the origin of the nations. And we have the reason for it as well. We'll get to that in chapter 11. We have ethnic affiliations that Abraham needed to know. In fact, the children of Israel needed to know. While they're in Egypt, why are we in Egypt? Who are these Egyptians? And what happened that we are slaves in this culture that uh, seems foreign from what our fathers are telling us? Well, it gives these ethnic relationships. Why they're going to have problems with the Canaanites. Why they're going to have issues with surrounding people. So I think we have these ethnic affiliations. We have, obviously, the origin of Israel. This is a main purpose. This is where the children of Israel came from. Now they know their roots, if you will. What is their origin? The origin of Israel. And what Paul is going to point out, and we're going to look at that passage the the unity of humanity, all of humanity. We're all related here. Now, we speak of being related in Christ, but we're also just uh, biologically related, genetically related. (laughs) Horrible thought, huh? (laughs) Get over it. The unity of humanity. All right. There you go. Acts 17, 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation. Notice nation. From one man every nation. Now, I think he's going back all the way to Adam. But if you have the biblical data, it also traces through Noah and the three sons. So he made, so he goes back. By the way, he goes back to creation science. Goes back to creation. That's where we start. He made from every one, every one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Uh, by the way, you have a complete philosophy of history right there, all in a couple of verses. You have the origins. You have all the parameters for doing good historical study. To live on all the face of the earth. And then who determined their appointed times and boundaries? Who's the he? Okay, he, God. Look for that in your uh, world history text, University of Texas or wherever you... In fact, this should be the introductory portion of every world history course, right there. should start there. To know where the nations came from. And not only that, but this very important phrase, having determined. In other words, what the secularist doesn't know is history is just not events, just taking place randomly and people rise and they have influence and all that. But really, there is a God behind all of events, and he is, in fact, orchestrating history. He determines nations, Their times, in other words, their rise and their fall, their extent. If you want it even closer to home, we're not guaranteed as the United States to endure forever. We may be on the last days, if you will. He has determined it. And I like to say scientifically that there's not an electron in the universe that doesn't uh, go out of orbit without at least the permissive will of God. And then I was corrected and I was told that there's smaller particles than electrons. Why limit God? He's sovereign over every particle. All right. So I had to backtrack and agree. So having determined God is this is very important. This is the most important parameter in world history study. God is sovereign. In other words, there is a grand plan that God is orchestrating and he is going to get us there. Bible prophecy is just telling us what's going to happen ahead of time in this grand plan. But He is sovereign. Okay? He has appointed their times, even their boundaries. So boundaries are important. Immigration, huh? Right? Boundaries are important. Habitation. And there's a purpose. There's a purpose clause, verse 27. I won't get into it for the sake of time here. But there's a... Interesting passage there, if we have more time. Maybe later on, if I catch up on time. Well, this table of nations is very important. It's the only authoritative source that we have for the origin of nations and the origin of languages. Gives the national distribution in the time of uh, Abraham, at least one family. And I want to stress the historicity of it. I hope I've done that, but call it to your attention again. And you might even see that uh, part of what Noah, I think, predicted. I think it's an oracle in chapter nine. It's not uh, fatalism, or not Noah, or Noah determining his sons' destiny. I think he foresaw probably characteristics in them and indications that this would be the outcome. And we could spend a whole hour talking about the end of chapter nine. So I think we have the at least the beginnings of the fulfillment of Noah's oracle. Okay, that's Babel. That's your introduction and context. So let's spend some time looking at Genesis 11. And we'll have to go quickly on this one as well. So we have the origin of the nations, chapter 10, and we have the scattering of the nations. So I see chapter 10 as the result of verses 1 through 9 the scattering of the nations, and that's the emphasis. The emphasis is not the Tower of Babel. We often refer to the Tower of Babel. Uh, That's secondary. That's just kind of the instrumentality of their unity. But what really is the focus is the scattering and all the effects of the scattering. So I call it the scattering of the nations. First of all, verses 1 through 4, we have the rebellion of peoples. In fact, you break it down into two parts, one through four, what the people do and then what God does in response to that. That's five through nine. So verses one and two, the unity of peoples. And verse one, now the whole earth. And notice the stress on the unity here. This is a, an important element in this passage. And this is uh, what, what God is going to deal with here. The whole earth, so all of humanity here, after the flood that you trace through Noah. Now, between between Noah and, uh, or the flood and Babel, uh, I didn't mention it, I'll get to it in a moment, but I put about a hundred years, because that's the beginning of Peleg's life, lifetime in there, in the chronology. So, in that time, people had children, and... There were already probably families, probably not nations, but there were ethnic groups perhaps already forming. And all of them are together, whole nation, use the same language. Throw that out to an evolutionist. Everybody spoke the same language at one time. What? Yeah, that's totally contrary to their thinking. Same language, in other words, same structure probably, same words, same vocabulary. So all of the elements of language... Unity. And then verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they have, they're a unified people. They're all together. They have a unified language. So they speak the same thing, clear communication, same location. So we have the unity stress there. And if you want to put it on a Google Earth map there, there you go. So from Ararat, and it says they went east, so they probably migrated uh, probably west of Ararat at the headwaters of the Tigris Euphrates. And then the text says they went east and found a plain, so they probably went somewhat southeast in the land of Shinar. And we probably have some evidence that Babel is on the same spot as Babylon. In fact, I think there's some clear ties between Babel and Babylon. Babylon. And by the way, about 60 or so miles south of Baghdad is where that would be located. So all that is present-day Iraq. And then we have verses 3 through 4. The next stress would be the defiance of the people. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. I think it calls attention to technology. And I'm going to make a big point of it. Not so much that the text makes a greater point of it, but I want to call attention to that uh, because it goes against some of the assumptions that we want to uh, go against ourselves. But notice technology here. They came to make bricks. Now, these are not mud bricks. These are uh, burned bricks, if you will. They're manufactured. So they understood manufacturing processes. And uh, they use bricks for stone, and they use tar for mortar. And then verse 4, come let us build for ourselves a city. Now, you don't think about it. You just turn on the tap in the morning, right? And you get a drink of water or you flush the toilet. But building cities requires technology, lots of technology. My background is civil engineering. And before you do a subdivision, you do months of... Uh, uh, Laying out plans and surveys and all and lots of technology goes into building cities. They have the technology to build a city. So just a little word there, but if you think about it, high technology, and not only that they're they're building skyscrapers, technology. How many of you could uh design and build a high rise? <clears throat> One story maybe <laughs> no <laughs> okay. Uh, they have, the point I'm making here, or calling attention to, is this tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now there's some spiritual things here as well, and I'm not overlooking them, but I just want to call attention because I'm going to stress this later on. So a tower reaching into heaven, I think this has spiritual, theological implications here. In other words, they're unified With language, they're unified culturally, they're unified as a people, they're in the same location, they have a unity of probably religious thought as well. And this tower is uh, probably an attempt to reach the gods or to get closer to the gods at least. And most of these high places, if you will, in Old Testament are places of sacrifice and have a lot of religious significance. I think this is the beginning of it right here at Babel. So you have the beginning of that as well. And archaeologists have uncovered at least the lower portions of uh Ziggurat in Babylon. That's a reconstruction of what it probably looked like. There are some that have believed that this may be the tower, but it's probably uh a later tower. I think the archaeology points in that direction. There's a model of it. And it is most certainly the Temple of Marduk. Artists' conception of Babel, just a few here. There's another artist's conception. Going to go over here. Running out of time here. Uh, another archaeologist came up with a reconstruction, probably of this ziggurat in Ur. And I'm going to make a big point. There's many of these in that region. Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Abraham came from. So he would have been familiar with these towers, these religious towers. Remember, he was an idolater. Uh, Joshua tells us that. Uh, Let us make for ourselves a name. Now, that's another emphasis here. In other words, they're not interested in glorifying God. They're interested in glorifying man. Things haven't changed very much. Uh, We're going to win, 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 win. We're going to get tired of winning, right? Make a name for yourself. Otherwise, and this is key here, wish we would spend more time on the passage, but otherwise we will be scattered abroad. Now that is just blatant. In other words, that is very clear what's going on in the thinking. In other words, what have they done? What was made clear, not only to Adam, but what was made clear to Noah, Genesis 9.1, and Adam, uh, Genesis 1.28, creation mandate or dominion mandate. Be fruitful, in other words, have babies. Multiply, in other words, have grandchildren and others and descendants and families. And what? Fill the earth. Subdue, in other words, harness the resources of the earth, all of technology. Fill the earth. And that's reiterated in the Noahic covenant or preceding the Noah Covenant in Genesis 9. They are doing the very opposite. In fact, they have determined to raise their fists against God in a collective sense, as a unified culture, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And just to call attention, notice the self-centeredness, the independence of God, the separateness of God, the secularism, if you will. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Let us, one another, in other words, self-focus, come, let us build for ourselves, self-centered, independent. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will not win, 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 win. Okay. Then chapter 11, verses 5 through 9, we have the judgment of God. We have the evaluation of the Lord, verses 5 and 6. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, there's several things in here. Does God have to come to see something? He can't see it from where he's at. Does he have to come down? Nope. Uh, Does he have to kind of learn? In other words, what's going on down there? I, I haven't been keeping track. Well, we have a real common, and this is common in these early chapters of Genesis, what's called anthropomorphism. In other words, language that portrays God in a way that uh, is related to man or picturing God as a man. And I think it's not only an anthropomorphism, but this anthropomorphism is used to convey another important biblical doctrine, the doctrine of condescension. God is condescending and He always condescends to mankind. In other words, He comes down to us. And the ultimate condescension, condescension obviously, is what? Incarnation. Yeah, the inc- where He became man. But we have the beginnings of this concept of uh, condescension. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of men have made. The picture here is God's got to stoop down you know condescension is stooping down what is this little tiny tower that men are trying to <laughs> <clears throat> they envision reaching heavens god's got to stoop down to see it <clears throat> i think that's the thrust of the passage the lord said behold who i've discovered something who behold they are one people notice the stress on the unity they are one people and they all have the same language Emphasizing what we already looked at. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Again, if you think of of it technologically, I think it has more to do than with just technology. But because technology is not bad and God's not condemning it per se. In fact, he doesn't condemn cities per se. In fact, where are we going to end up? We're going to end up in a city, the new Jerusalem. So it's not the city, it's not the tower per se, it's what's behind it. It's it's the purposes and the motivation behind it. And what we have here is they're going to be able to advance in technology so so much, but it's technology for the use of evil. And nothing's going to be able to stand in the way of their evil desires. Uh, We're pretty much there again, aren't we? in terms of the technology we have. Okay, so uh, when we speak of Babel, think of it not just as a judgment, but we need to think of it as God's grace as well. He's preserving mankind from keeping him from destroying himself. And then 7 and 8, we have the judgment. So that was the evaluation, 5 and 6. 7 and 8 is the judgment. Come, let us, and again. In fact, this is reminiscent of chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image. We have... Intra-Trinitarian communication. Let us go down and they're confused their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So God takes action. This is an act of grace. And it's confusing the language. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them as a result of the confusing of the languages. Scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Now, if you think about it, technologically, what God did is He interrupted this evil bent and evil use of technology, because if you can't communicate, then uh, you have a hard time passing technology on and utilizing the collective technology that a culture develops. Uh, All of us, for example, we, you know, I'm dependent on Jerry, for example, for a lot of computer stuff and dependent on others and because I don't have all the resources and none of you do as well. And some of you couldn't build a house and, or design a road or anything. And, you know, uh, I can't do a lot of things. So we, we are kind of interdependent as cultures. And what Babel did is he dis- God disrupted all that because of the motivation behind it and the self-centered and independent spirit. So we have a lot of contrasts that kind of heighten the the judgment in contrast to what man accomplished. They want to reach to heaven. God has to stoop down on his hands and knees. Uh, they said, Come, let us build something, a city and a tower. God within the Trinity communicates. Come, let us deal with this issue in verse 7. One language, seven and nine, the confusing of the languages. And by the way, there are, there, there's a lot of antithetical parallelism in the passage. In fact, it's a masterpiece of art. Uh, we didn't do it justice in the short time that we've given it. So uh, these are some of the antithetical parallel ideas, at least. Spoke to one another, now they can't understand one another, we're seven. We have human actions in 3 and 4. Now we have God's action, divine action in verse 8. Uh, their determination, lest they be scattered, the Lord determines to scatter them. And then verse 9, we have the results. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God is going to memorialize them. They want to make a name for themselves. Well, God's going to give them a name. <laughs> you're going to be remembered for confusion. All right. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the whole face of the earth. So that completes our contrasts. They want to make a name. He gives them a name uh, over the whole earth. The whole, they're together in the whole earth, and now he's going to scatter them throughout the whole earth. Just a summary of the passage. The essence of it is rebellion, man's rebellion. And the judgment of God, but we have grace as well. God, in fact, every time there's grace or judgment, there's grace. Because judgment is God's saving, basically, man from his own destruction. And this is pivotal in uh, world history. This is a pivotal event. Look for that in your University of Texas world history book. It's pivotal in that God is now going to deal with humanity in a a different way. He's going to deal with one nation. But first of all, he has to develop one individual by the name of Abraham. He's going to call out a people to himself separate from the nations. And he's going to bless the rest of the nations through that one, first of all, individual, and then eventually that nation. So this all of world history changes at Babel. And the nations, we have uh, their cause. The cause of the nations are the confusing of the languages. That's made clear, which is contrary to secular thinking. We also have background to Babel or Babylon, rather. I think a direct re- uh, relationship there. Babylon is going to be very important in Scripture in terms of the nation of Israel. We don't have time to trace their history. But God is going to deal with Babylon ultimately, Revelation 17 and 18. So there's going to be kind of a history of dealings with Babylon. Here's the background. Here's the beginning of that background. And the time frame I mentioned earlier, the life of Peleg is roughly 100 to 300 years after the flood. And that's where I would put it on a timeline. This is a timeline that puts all the Genesis chronology on it. And I'll talk about the chronology later on, but if you put the flood using Harold Honer's chronology, the, probably the most conservative chronology, no gaps in any of the genealogies of the flood, 2487, give or take, and about 100 years later you have Babel. Hmm? Hmm. Okay, so that's your exposition. Let's get into a little bit, about five, what do we have, about five minutes to get into it, and then we have Q&A. Robbie? Robbie's asleep. (coughs) Implications of Babel? (laughs) Just keep going. Okay. Q&A, yeah. Great. That's what I thought. Sorry to wake you up. Okay, implications. Probably your number one implication, I believe, sovereignty of God. In other words, man can make all of his plans. Man can envision great things. He can decide to do certain things. He can even decide to go totally contrary to what God says. But God is sovereign over every electron, remember? Or every, every smaller particle than electrons. So He is sovereign. And, and by the way, I think this is one of the major themes of all of Scripture. God is sovereign over all things. And there's hundreds of passages that speak to that. In fact, I believe every book of the Bible emphasizes the sovereignty of God. And certainly some individual areas as well. He's sovereign over the material realm very much so, over every electron. He's sovereign over angelic creatures. He's sovereign over Satan. Satan cannot do anything apart from God's permissive will. He's sovereign over, obviously, history. He's sovereign over the nations. Lots of verses that tell you all of that. And certainly he's sovereign over individual lives. And we've seen even before chapter 10 and 11, we've seen more evidence of God sovereign. He brought a flood sovereignly that destroyed the whole world. Uh, Let's conclude with this implication, the origin of languages. And like I said in the introduction, what we want to do as believers, we've kind of forfeited, Charlie Clough makes a big deal out of how much we have forfeited to the secular world, particularly in education. You know, our, Our kids, I don't have any, but Your kids, uh, if they go to the public school or even uh, state universities, they're indoctrinated in a worldview that is totally contrary to the biblical worldview. And we as believers, we as the church, have failed to emphasize the Bible speaks about every issue, every area, uh, including science and certainly history in every area, let's take a look at language. And what I want to give you is kind of a biblical foundation for language. These are the main parameters that we should utilize in any approach to studying language as a concept, I guess you could say, or an endeavor. So I want to give you a real quick foundation to languages because we have the origin. So that's going to give us some parameters Already, Well, first of all, when we speak of language or one step behind that, communication, we begin, God is the first communicator. So, what does that take us? That takes us all the way back to where? Genesis 1.3, and God said. God speaks. God communicates. And every one of the creative days are preceded, some of them even two times. We have God said, then we have the creation fiat. So God is not silent. This is contrary. What I have on the right-hand side is the secular worldview, and on the left side of the slide there is what the biblical worldview looks like. So we start, in terms of language, with God as the first communicator. In other words, language... And communication starts with... Everything starts with God. So every one of your foundations for whatever you are endeavoring to study, God has to be the first one because He's the Creator, for one thing. Uh, It's so important. It's not trivial. Communication is not trivial. It's the very means that God uses to create. There are no physical processes. Now, there's some process in some of the creative days, but essentially it all begins with basically God speaking things into existence. Psalm 33 emphasizes that as well. God spoke everything into being. So the means of creation. Thirdly, it originates in God. And when we say it originates in God, the whole concept of language. And if you think about language, language... Obviously, we formulate thoughts in our minds and language is the ability that God has put in us to be able to convey those thoughts to someone else. And he's structured our brains in such a way that we can visualize categories, categories of thoughts, nouns. Uh, God sets up categories. What does he do at the very beginning? He separates out light from darkness. In other words, he's forming categories already. Separates the land from the water. So he's forming categories. What's the first task that he gives to Adam after, in chapter 2? Adam's doing the same thing. He's setting up categories. Okay, this is a cat. This is a dog. This is a category here. This is a different one. little child recognizes that. Because we think in terms of categories. So God is the one that sets all these uh, uh, language theory ideas. And he gives them names, in other words, identifies them. The giving of names also indicates the ability to discern characteristics. The, this has set a set of characteristics different from these, this category. And the naming motif in Genesis uh, also has sovereignty ideas behind it. In other words, he is sovereign over all the things that he names. And the task that he gives to Adam in naming is he is sovereign. He is God's delegated sovereign over the whole earth. And it begins by naming the animals. He's the first biologist that first forms categories of classification. All right? So it originates in God, and then he builds it in man. It's built within us because we are in the image of God, God, It comes from him, but he has already preceded all that. And he tells us that in Genesis. And then now he has built it in us. He gives us the brain to be able to process thought and to form those ideas. And then he's given us all the apparatus, if you will, or physiology to be able to begin to put those ideas into a form that others can pick up and receive. And he's given us the ability to receive that communication as well. So he builds it in man. So it's not evolution. So it doesn't originate in in man. It originates in God. Uh, All of that is the evolutionary viewpoint. So it's not evolution. It's built in man. And it's fully functional. Linguists didn't come up with these ideas, these theories. It's fully functional. Adam could fully communicate right after creation. Didn't learn how to communicate. No baby talk in Genesis chapter 2. And then Genesis chapter 3, always perverted by sin. That's why it's a major event, because everything has changed after Genesis 3. And the first perverter is the first liar. Did God really say these things? Perverting, raising doubts, and overtly even lying. Some half-truth in there. So language is perverted. It's not pure like it was before the fall. So these are all parameters. Number seven, it's judged at Babel. It doesn't come about as a result of culture and isolation, but because of God's intervention. And language is plural as a result of God intervening. Make sense? Okay. Uh, That's probably a good place to stop. Did Robbie finally go to bed somewhere? (laughs) I guess I'll just keep going then. (laughs) There he is. (laughs) We're talking about judgment, it's coming. <laughs> okay.
0: That was great, Ray. I, I re- really, really. <laughs> okay, we've got about we got a little more time. This is great Q and A. If anybody has any questions, how many people have questions? One over here. One, another one over there. Okay, good.
1: It was crystal clear. But no questions.
0: You- See, <laughs> <laughs> the crystal clear of this. Which will
1: take is what you let her babble right
0: <laughs> is it not working
2: uh, my question I, I, I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead or not but I found it very curious that right after Babel and all the separation of nations that Abraham went to Egypt and was able to communicate um, have we have we looked at how fast they were able to even though they were The the, the languages were scattered, yet they've always found a way to still communicate among the nations?
1: Uh, I don't know of any data that kind of gives us any from the biblical or historical, but my fallback always when I do creation stuff, if I'm doing the flood, I'm not a geologist, so I don't know these things. So I'm not a linguist. I I have no idea. Uh, Yeah, I don't have a good answer to your question. And I'm not aware of any data that tells us how he was able and how much. Now, I go to Ukraine, and I can communicate down there. I I don't know a word of Russian. But I use a lot of sign language, and, you know, where's this? You know, show a map, and I usually find the bathroom at least.
0: (laughs) It's amazing, though, how quickly people especially if you're growing up in a in a in a, in a culture where there's uh, multiple languages how quickly children can ac- accumulate right. at the same time they can be exposed to five languages and their brain sorts it out so yeah uh, we don't have have a lot of detail but with the travel and the trade and everything there was probably a lingua franca at right. that time like there usually is and exactly and, uh, some, something of that nature yep. okay Jer- jeremy you had a question
1: come to Texas Texan is a universal language is that what we'll speak in the millennium <laughs> thanks Ray uh, my question is just like humanists evolutionists have classified because we're built in the image of God they have the kingdom phylum class that system of organizing nature
2: and when you talked about the the languages 6900 languages and they've broken them down into 94 families or whatever has somebody come, uh, creationists, uh,
1: like the barominologists I've done for kinds, and have they come into the schematic of Genesis 10 and started to look at these languages and try to, from that, develop a, you know, a way that we should look at them? Has anybody done that? I don't know of detailed work, but I do know that the fellow that I quoted, those numbers, John Aller, he's a linguist and he's a creationist, he's a believer. In fact, he used to live in Albuquerque, and I got to know him. And he's done some thinking along those lines. Uh, you might Google John Oller, and he's written articles and stuff. He probably is. How do you spell that? O l l e r, O l l e r. Yeah, yeah. Now,
0: now I've read. I don't know where it was, but I've read that that the Hamitic the Hamitic language groups. And of course, and, and, and this was, Nimrod was a descendant of Ham, and this is the, the group that received the brunt of the, of the, of the curse there, at Babel, that those languages are the most, I mean, there, there are just, you know, the multiplicity of Hamitic languages right. goes far beyond the other groups, and that in, in many of the areas, like in Irian Jaya, you'll have tribal groups that split off, and, and will subdivide and subdivide, and within a generation, they can't communicate with each other because the language morphs so quickly.
2: Right. Thank you, Ray. Just an observation on my own part. As a grandparent, I'm noticing in my, my young grandkids, particularly my one now who's just a little over one years old, that the... Ability to understand language on the part of my one-year-old, what I'm communicating. Uh, w- I go out at night with him, holding him. Where's the moon? He knows exactly what I'm saying, and he right. points to it. That's yeah, built in. However, A lot of the, that of that the in. I guess, physiological ability for him to speak in my language lags behind. Why? You know, no, no. I'm not asking why. I'm just saying it's just an observation. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and I almost think, perhaps, that the ability of, of this little child, even prior to being age one—I mean, way back when he was just not long after he was born—probably is able to understand language far greater than we give them credit for. They just can't yet speak it. Yes, and it's just yeah, an inst- interesting that. observation. And I think yes. it points right. to exactly what you, and supports what you're talking about today.
1: Yeah, all the—I think the, all the evidence points to. A lot, a lot of it built in already. Yeah. Just a matter of just exercising it and developing it.
0: Well, there's a um, evolutionist at at MIT who was one of Charlie's professors, and I can't. Neither one of us can think of his name right now. Well known. Uh, anyway, he he says we're hardwired for language, mm-hmm. but he can't explain it. That's the biggest challenge for evolutionists is to explain why humans speak and other creatures don't. Uh, right. we're, we're hardwired for language and and um, th- this is something that, that's a gr- great evidence for uh, for creation
1: right in fact uh, Charlie what what's the name of the guy that uh, I don't remember the quote but basically he says by the age of six you've accomplished your greatest intellectual feat or something the ability to that
0: was yeah Mortimer J Adler okay. who was one of the editors of the Encyclopedia right. Britannica and great books of the Western world.
1: Because by age six, you're able to not only formulate the thoughts, but to be, be able to very clearly communicate them in a language.
0: Unless you're an engineer.
1: That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, any other questions?
3: Uh, thank you for your talk. I'm a civil engineer, too. Oh, and I'm not wow. a... Um, I don't have uh, a background in language, but I did read from an author once uh, that um, that the language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic. Do you agree with that?
1: It seems like that's probably one of the languages. I, I would think that he spoke Hebrew. I think he probably. spoke Greek.
3: Yeah, probably. And <laughs> thought of that, but um, yeah. and that that language didn't come probably with
1: probably Texan.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Tex Mex. Um, but that. That language, actually, he said, did not come from a nation. It just popped up about 1,000 years B.C., and it uh, lasted to about 1,000 years A.D. Is that what you...
1: Um, yeah, I would say somewhere where it was the prominent, it, it was the lingua franca for a while, yeah. yeah. I don't think it just popped up. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I would probably no. wouldn't no. think that. But it
3: wasn't associated with the nation, or do you don't, I was just wondering if Yeah.
1: yeah. Robbie's
3: got a better answer. Yeah, it, it was associated with the with
0: like like Northwest. It's a Semitic language, very close to Hebrew. So it develops within that Northwest area, Syria, over towards the uh, upper part of what we today would call Syria, Iraq. That area uh, is where where that developed. So it's a. Uh, you, know, you also have uh, the language like it at Ugarit, which was north in, in, which was in southern Syria, and we study Ugaritic and it because it's very, very close to Hebrew, Aramaic's the same way. So you have these these uh, uh, different languages that develop within the family groups. Any other was there somebody over here? Last chance going once? Okay. Ray, thank you very much. That was, that was tremendous. Looking forward. That, that, that was part one and part two is, will be tomorrow morning at 8.30. So we'll get the rest of the story. Alright, we're going to take a, about a 25 minute break now. Uh, Dr. Austin will be here, uh, for the next session and he's going to be speaking on uh where does creation go science go from here? So we'll be focusing uh more on that creation science issue at that point. Okay? Thank you.